When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Talking to Death is released weekly, every Wednesday, and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and exclusive bonuses, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com or on Apple Podcasts. Talking to Death is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeart Podcasts. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome Welcome back. back. You planned that all week. You you were way too excited about doing that. I I just thought of doing it. Okay. That was pretty original. Welcome back to Talking to Death. Uh, I'm Payne Lindsay. This is my annoying friend, Mike Rooney. It's been a pretty busy week for kind of both of us. I spent a lot of my time preparing for my next trip to Alaska. For those of you who don't know, I have a true crime podcast called Up and Vanished that is in its fourth season. It's coming out in January. And so I'm, I'm deep into investigating a missing persons case right now. And I'll tell you the one thing that I really kind of underestimated by investigating a case in Alaska is the absolute logistical nightmare of it all. Alaska is so far away from Atlanta, ridiculously far. I was checking the flights this week, and the fastest flight there is to get to Anchorage is 10 hours. You can literally get to London from Atlanta in probably six. It's too big of a state. Because even when you get there, you're probably another two-hour flight from the next place you actually have to be. You could easily split Alaska into 30 different states, and it wouldn't matter at all. I think it's just a little too big for us. I mean, it's basically Russia. Like, it, seriously, it's very close to Russia. I mean, the parts that we're going to, which I'm not going to divulge all the details right now because we're still doing it, but we're very far north up there. You can, we're literally closer to Russia than we are to <laughs> anything else in the U.S., but yeah, I've just been kind of, you know, trying to plan out the trip and the logistics are always kind of a nightmare. You know, when you get there, you're taking charter planes or you're doing rental cars. And over the past few years, when it comes to rental cars, I've been a fan of using this app called Turo. It's basically the Airbnb for renting cars. Definitely. It's just more convenient. They have cooler vehicles. It's always usually cheaper. And sometimes they'll even drop it off at your doorstep. So I've used the Turo app for 
couple years, probably almost 20 different rentals, five stars, you know, I've been a pretty good customer. But I remembered just yesterday when I was trying to use the Turo app again, that actually I've been banned from Turo. Usually nine times out of 10, when someone gets banned from an app, they probably deserved it. They probably did something messed up or broke the rules or tried to cheat the system. Usually, right? Well, it's not usually a lifetime ban, right? right. It's- yeah, this is a life. I have a lifetime, <laughs> lifetime ban from the Turo app. Let me tell you this quick little story here. I've been a great customer. A few months ago, I was in Providence, Rhode Island. Never been there before. Was with one of our producers, Eric, and we traveled there to do one interview. Got there late at night. Eric picked up the car from the airport. We slept at this hotel, woke up in the morning, just drove a half hour outside of town. Then lunch came around. We, we met at this restaurant by the airport, dropped the car back off to the guy. He was even like, how'd you enjoy the car? Was, you know, was it nice? And it was like a BMW sedan. I was like, yeah, it's pretty comfortable. He's like, hey, well, if you're ever in Providence again, let me know because I have other vehicles. Well, I guess I made the mistake of just admitting to him that I might not ever be here again. I said something along the lines of, oh, I mean, who knows if I'll be in Providence again, but we'll see. I'll let you know. And in hindsight, I'm like, did I just tip this guy off that I'm maybe never coming to Providence again? Because here's what happened. I get home that night and I have an email from Turo customer support. I can no longer log into the app and it says I've been permanently banned from the app because I smoked in the vehicle. And I was like, okay, this guy's got it confused. Maybe it's the, a different car, one of his other cars that he got that day, and he's confusing me. This should be easy to clear up. Then I scroll further down, and I see all these different pictures he took that are definitely the car we had, the same car, and there's ash everywhere in the seats and this smoking gun of a blue lighter in the passenger seat. And I was like, holy shit, this guy is setting me up. This sounds unbelievable. So clearly, Turo did not believe me when I said, he's lying. (laughs) But here's what he got out of this, right? Here's why it was a flawless plan on his part. I paid him a $300 fine. I'm permanently banned. I cannot message him anymore. I can barely get through to Turo. And when I do, they clearly don't believe me when I say, hey, this guy's making this up and he staged these photos. You were framed. I was framed. And so I'm not even mad at them for not believing me, but a part of me is just so annoyed that he got away with this. So Turo, if you're listening, just know that there is a guy out there who will probably do this again if he's not already. And if you've banned him or something, reach back out to me and unlock my account because I liked using it. But anyways, I got framed for smoking cigarettes in a rental car. And I'm talking about, it was a lot of ash. It was not to be confused with anything else. It wasn't dust. This guy seriously littered his car with some sort of substance that looked like cigarette ash. I don't know. Just telling you the truth. You don't have to believe me, because Turo doesn't either. Anyways, I just I was thinking about that last night, and I got annoyed, and I figured I would tell that story because Turo won't listen anymore, so maybe you guys can listen to me. Don't message them or anything. I mean, unless you work there or something. Just start a petition. Start a peti- yeah. Change.org. <laughs> yeah, this is a big deal, guys. Yeah, so preparing for Alaska, it's going to be freezing cold. Did you get your booties? <sighs> My booties? Your booties, your snow booties. Oh, no. I-, I definitely need to go clothes shopping 
for some serious jackets. I mean, I think it said it was going to be 13 degrees. That's not some play around shit. That is some, if you don't have the right gear and you're outside for too long, you might get hyperthermia kind of situation. So let's be sure to overpack the gloves and the jackets. I know I'm going to try to do that. Today's guest is one of my personal heroes, and I mean that in all seriousness. He's one of my biggest inspirations when it comes to storytelling as a whole. He's a very successful documentary filmmaker and a super talented cinematographer, and he's produced, in my opinion, the best true crime documentary series of all time, hands down. His name is Mark Smerling, and the series I'm talking about is called The Jinx on HBO. If, for whatever reason, you've not seen this, which that's, you need to fix that. Go watch it right now. The Jinx on HBO. I'm going to give you the, the spoiler alert warning now because we, we dive deep into what happens in this docuseries. If you haven't seen it, it will get spoiled for you. In 2015, he released a true crime docuseries called The Jinx. And in my opinion, it's probably the best true crime doc made to date. And it is really what even inspired me to start telling these kinds of stories in the first place. So if you've seen The Jinx, this interview is going to be very interesting. If you haven't, I'll give you a little log line here, synopsis on what happens in the dock. If you want to watch it for yourself, just pause and go check it out on HBO. It'll be worth it. For years, Mark Smerling followed this guy around named Robert Durst. Robert Durst was this old multimillionaire guy who inherited this money from his dad in this real estate business in New York City. And he became the main suspect in a series of unsolved murders. And it didn't look very good for him. And Mark Smerling and his directing partner, Andrew Jarecki, followed this guy around for years, asking him questions about these murders. And here comes the big spoiler, if you don't know already. At the very end of this documentary, something magical happens. Once they've cut the interview, and it's over, he's still wearing this wireless lavalier mic, Robert Durst is, and he goes to the bathroom, and he starts talking to himself. And he starts saying things that essentially incriminate him, basically admitting that he killed these people. It's gone down infamously now as the jinx moment. And if you're a true crime storyteller, everyone is after their jinx moment, right? What's that magical ending that ties this whole story up in a bow? How do we catch the bad guy? Mark Smerling really did this, and it is absolutely mind-blowing to see. We dive deep into that today, and we go way behind the scenes on what it was really like, how he frames stories, his podcasting career, his career as a filmmaker. I really do look up to him, and the way that he crafts a story to me is so admirable. The guy is a wealth of knowledge, and on top of that, just a great human being. I love his dry wit, which you'll see, and I like giving him shit sometimes because he's twice my age. I'll call him dad or something weird. And I know he doesn't think it's that funny because he also has a son. And he's like, dude, that's kind of weird. And I'm like, why, dad? Shut up, dad. And I can tell he gets annoyed by it. So I, it makes me want to keep doing it, dad. But yeah, I love this guy. It's a hilarious interview. And if you haven't seen The Jinx, please go watch it because this is about to be really badass. So without further ado, here's episode four of Talking to Death with my good friend, Mark Smerling.
you have an amazing body of work and you've done the jinx and you have all these podcasts and documentaries all over the place true crime stuff don't you think you're a little fucked up in the head <laughs> but no but seriously is there not some sort of bizarre connection and you, you probably put it in a more nuanced way than i could is there a fine line between this guy and this guy uh, well, I think that crime sort of amplifies drama, mystery. It certainly answer, amplifies a person's personality. Mm -hmm. So everything that we expect out of life uh, that are like, you know, emotions and, and stuff that drives story um, are amplified in the world of crime. Right. So for me, it was always like, this is crazy. It's stranger than fiction. Yeah, know? it's real. Yeah, it's real life, and it, it's the real stakes life. are different. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know how many times you've been in this position. I'm sure you have, but I remember thinking while making capturing the Freedmans just how insane that story was, mm -hmm. and how could these people have manufactured this witch hunt and created this world in this suburban town outside of. New York City, which is a very wealthy town, yeah. and persecute this young man. And I was like, it happened. Yeah. So then when you start digging at it, you start to actually see how it happens. You know, because, you know, the one thing you don't want to be is the person doing the Wikipedia page, you know, version, you know, the ABCs of it. You sure. do want to kind of get to some sort of deeper truth about these things. And why do you feel that way? Because I want to know. <laughs> I want to know why these things Personally, happen. Personally, you want yeah. to. I want to know why these things happen. You think you tell better stories that way? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's easy to tell a crime story. It's hard to tell a crime story that makes somebody feel something. Right. And one of the things I, I'd like the people to feel, and I don't always get the opportunity in all crime stories, is humor. Mm -hmm. Irony being the sort of overriding factor in is a lot like of Is it more crime. of an absurdity thing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the irony of Jim trafficking, yeah. you know, and the the sort of absurdity of it, you know. I think some people they they wouldn't be able to handle being this deep and true crime stories all the time, and from a creative standpoint, and talking to the actual victims, and you know, chasing down the bad guy. Mm. What does that do? Or how, how do you deal with that? I guess oh, I love it, but I don't. I don't do. Uh, I've only done one murder story, the Jinx, you know, and I you actually got pretty close. So I mean, right? No, there have all been like capturing Freedmans was a no. I mean, like about. in the Jinx, you got pretty close. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, him. the Jinx was, but you know, I, I hate to say this, but I'd written the movie for all good things. Yeah. Um, and I was, I kind of went kicking and screaming into making the Jinx because you know, in the story, Bob reached out. Yeah. Because he, you know, anybody's going to be played by such a handsome actor. Right, uh, you know, is going to reach out. Couldn't help himself. Couldn't help himself, and um, and he reached out and he wanted to do this interview, and I went to meet him at at uh, the Peninsula Hotel in in Beverly Hills, and we got through that meeting, and Andrew came a little later, and my entire mission was to talk Andrew out of making another doc about this guy, and to figure out a way to do this interview, and. Uh, and give it over to Dateline or someone like that. Mm -hmm. We cut together a 12 minute, you know, sort of sizzle of it. And we showed it to Diane Sawyer. And we were like, gonna make a great Dateline. She looked at it, she goes, no, no, no. This is much bigger than Dateline. I was like, 
Oh, darn. You know, it's hard to live in that world. You live in that world much more than I do. Because after that, I did, you know, I did Crime Town. It was about mm-hmm. a bunch of wise guys and they're hilarious. <laughs> they are pretty, pretty damn funny. You know, and then I did, you know, I did other things about organized crime, corruption, mm-hmm. you know, the biggest embezzlement in US history. But I haven't done another murder show since then. You know, and I've been in, thinking is that about intentional that. Or is that, and yeah. does it come at a cost? Is that what you're saying? It's one of those stories are, are very, they, I mean, if you are as an empath. For the lay person, what do you mean by that? I mean, you, you have to feel when you meet somebody like a Jerry Tillinghast, who's one of the more violent gangsters in crime town, mm-hmm. you have to, you have to kind of find a way into that person so that you can love them because you're gonna be telling their story and there's a reason that they're the way they are. Find a reason to love them. Yes, because there's a reason the way that they are the way they are. Mm. And it's your job to figure that out, you know? And if you listen to Crime Town, you follow Jerry's story, you figure it out, mm-hmm. you know? You get to the bottom of that. Yeah, yeah. You, you figure out that he was, you know, abused as a child and that he had these brothers and one was a drug addict. Why is all, all this stuff happening, Yeah, right? When you do that on a murder story, mm-hmm. it's it's just much more heart wrenching. You know, it's like you know you get into especially with missing missing and, and murdered women, mm-hmm. like the McCormick family. It was I just it was heart wrenching to see what that that family had to live with after they, you know, Kathy disappeared. It was terrible. You know, it dictated yeah. everybody in the families for two generations right. their life in some Consumed. terrible subterranean yeah. way. So I, I was like, I don't want to do that again right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I get it. Yeah. yeah, you told me. I mean, I want to say it's the first time I I talked to you uh, in like a official capacity. It was on Up and Vanish, uh, season one. Right. But you, you told me. I think you said these stories never leave you. Right. And I asked you to expand on that, and you basically said that you know you're doing this now, but these people will be in your life forever. Yeah. And I mean, it couldn't be more true, but you know, is that, when did you, when did you learn that? I guess, I mean. Uh, I learned that on capturing the Freedmans. You know, I still, you know, once in a while get, get together with Jesse Friedman, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, I mean, after capturing the Freedmans, Andrew and I did a 440 motion for him to try to get his case looked at again which was a disaster at some level, but, you know, we did our best. And then, you know, we, you know, you have to sit by and kind of watch that not happen, knowing that what's really motivating it not happening is politics and closed-mindedness and not necessarily the truth. And you can't physically do it yourself, right? You, I, mean, I mean, you can't do it. You're, you're, you can, you you can, can come up buttons, against- But you cannot be the person to do it. You can't make it happen. Right. Judges got to make that happen. Yeah. So um, we got close, but we didn't get there. So, you know, you go down, you know, you get into these relationships that go on forever. I mean, I have, um, I have a lot of law enforcement contacts and I have a lot of organized crime contacts um, who I'm actually friends with. And, you know, they're all, you know, they're all retired now or some aren't retired, but, you know, I go and visit them down in Florida and I hang out with them. <laughs> nice. <laughs> They tell great stories because that's what you learn in prison. Storytelling? Oh yeah, because storytelling in prison is like- Among other things probably. Yeah, but storytelling in prison is like, uh, it's a way to kind of make money. Really? Yeah, you can trade stories. 
with for cigarettes. Cigarettes are actual money. Yeah, that's right. Cold so, hard cash. Yeah, so you can trade. And there's one of the guys in uh, who told me that was Anthony Fury and and Brian. Anthony Fury was in in Crime Town. He was just out of prison when we started making that, and he was a incredible storyteller. And he would tell, he would sit in the in the prison yard, and people, the young guys would come around. Oh, this old wise guy, and uh, he would tell these outrageous stories. And uh, they were outrageous. I don't remember it, but he was the guy who, uh, you know, got a bunch of guys together with machine guns and tried to take down armored cars. Jeez. <laughs> kind of like okay. heat. Yeah, some big boy stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He ain't playing around. <laughs> yeah. And he did, uh, I think he spent 38 years in prison of his life. I mean, that's one place I never want to go. Yeah. Is a, is a prison cell. Yeah. When you're in that edit mode, do you ever get to that point where you go to sleep or something and it's still rattling around in your brain where it's, yeah. it's just like... It might be a, a soundbite loop or a, a musical cue or yeah. whatever, and it's like it's just sort of propelling you through the day. Yeah. Apart from the panic attacks of knowing what you're going to do to make it great. You do you know? rely on the panic attacks to no. get the job done? what I've learned... that's not... Yeah. Yeah, what I've learned is it comes, and it usually comes when you're talking about, when you're in bed at night and you're like thinking about something else, and then it just sort of comes you mean trying to figure out figure the solution out. to your creative problem here yeah your storytelling problem yeah because if yeah. you try to force it, it never comes and you you always try for a minute and then you're like oh, god you yeah know? yeah and it comes in a dumb time and that's anxiety provoking it is because you really want to get to the end of the story of making your story yeah as quickly as i need possible. to know this so i can do all these yeah. other things and so i can sleep tonight and i don't have to <laughs> yeah. think that i'm not going to be able to do this you know yeah. so i get some <laughs> damn sleep around here <laughs> right but then you'll be like it's weird it's like it's always happens when i'm not thinking about it and then yeah. all of a sudden i'm like oh that's what i can do yeah. you know i can i can go and take this and move it up in the story and it'll it'll give some momentum to this person that I'm telling this story about, and I start to see it more clearly. It's like the shower moment. I, I have those shower moments where it'll be actually in the shower, and I'm like, oh, there, I got something. That that was the thing I was looking for last week, yeah. and it just sets it all in motion now. The weird thing about it is, after doing it for so long, I don't necessarily feel like, oh, every time it's just gonna show up. I still have the anxiety that moment oh, where I'm yeah, sitting like in the One booth. of these times I'm gonna go dry here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I, I, do you run out of cool ideas? You know, like, I actually did go dry once. Okay. It was directing a music video for an artist we will not mention. Oh, God. But it was one of those jobs I should never have taken. So and, uh, what happened then? Well, um, I wrote a treatment I didn't believe in, and I didn't know how it was going to accomplish, because it was not the world I live in. Why'd you do that? Money. Okay. Money's a, a big factor so you, in So you were being overly ambitious? Or uh, I was, I needed to keep my business open. I needed yeah. to make money for the company. I needed to keep things rolling forward. And, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, I got talked into it. I was young. I was probably 26 years old, 27 years old. Um, and I remember that was the worst night of my life. I remember the night before the shoot, I was literally vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> Were you? It's like uh, you're in, in college. You haven't studied for the test yet, or something. Yeah. And you're like, why did I do this to myself? I'm so stupid. I'm about to ruin everything. Exactly. And so, what'd you do? You just bombed, or what? No, I powered through, and it was a disaster. Why? Uh, because I didn't really know how to deal with the subject matter. 
which I can't, I can't okay, put I to throw this, you know, I mean, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't get my head around, it didn't come, let's just put it, it didn't come <laughs> in the middle of the night like it usually comes, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, you know, I just didn't know how to deal with it, and, um, but I powered through the shoot, and when I put the cut together, I was like, oh, man, and then I felt terrible, because I really liked the artist, Damn. on a personal level. Wow, what's the name again? Huh? <laughs> what's his name again? <laughs> it was no? a girl, I'll tell you that much. Okay, yeah. all right, I'll look her up. Anyway, so... Um, that was that was uh, eye opener. I sort of learned yeah. in that moment to turn down work. Okay, so what did you learn besides just turning down work about yourself? Um, that I, I'm not going to be able to figure everything out. You know that there's going to be stories that I'm more inclined to figure out. There's a core of who you are as a person, and that comes from you know childhood, really. Yeah. And uh, I think in a lot of really good storytellers, they're trying to answer the questions of their formative years, um, whether those are questions are, you know, on the battlefields of Vietnam or those questions are in the Civil War, doesn't really matter. The questions are all the same. So for me, you know, getting so involved in crime, it was something I was thinking about when I was a kid. Committing crimes? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Can I get away with it? How much can I get away with? <laughs> right. You know, where would I fence Would I get in stuff? trouble? <laughs> See, you, you were obsessed with crimes as a, as a kid? I was at, well back when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. We had books. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, but uh, they're not like, in a long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they we we didn't have like well, there were three. There was ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS. Okay. You know, and we had local WRTV, Channel Eleven, and then Channel Five. There was a couple other ones, but not a lot. Yeah. And um, you know, it was a big deal when your TV show came on. Yeah. Right. And you would like everybody would get up in Dad's bed and Mom's bed, and you sit there and you watch, you know, Banachek. Yeah. You know. So, and I always loved those shows, but why I love those shows is I was reading Dashiell Hammett, Jim Thompson. I was reading all those noir detective stories. Yeah. Then I got into, when I read um, Capote, you know, I got into the, the true crime stuff, you know, mm -hmm. which I, that book is incredible. I haven't read that. And, you know, and, you know, I just started reading voraciously about crime stories, whether it was nonfiction or fiction. So you had this all just stacking up in your brain as a kid. And yeah, and I always wanted to do it. So that's why I went to newspapers. But did you want to do it in a, from a fictional standpoint, like write a story? No, I was always a nonfiction guy. You wanted to go poke around other real crimes. Yeah, stranger than fiction, right? All these years after you first started doing true crime stories, do you have any feelings about how big the genre of it is now in oh, yeah. terms of everything that's out there it wasn't always like that no um there were there were very good writers who were working in it and they were usually coming out of newspapers you know and out of journalism and some were making it up like thomas perry but i think he was probably a newspaper guy first mm -hmm. but then all of a sudden i guess i hate to you know the jinx came out the jinx sort of reset the uh I didn't, nobody could have guessed. I mean, I knew it was good. You know, the term I hear the most mm. in the producing side of this content is we want to get the jinx moment. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I bet you even want to get the jinx moment sometimes, right? I'm not so, I, I think if you get it once in a lifetime, you should be very happy. You get one? <laughs> I'm not maybe, so maybe already have my greedy mind. that I think I'm going to get another one. I'd just rather... Yeah you know, lean into the storytelling and try to... I mean, do you feel like, though, outside of the luck of it all, right? Because sometimes you cannot... I don't know if it was happen. entirely luck. Well, that's, that's what I'm getting at. I yeah. mean, do you feel like it's more of a culmination of all the decisions that were made 
to massage it into the possibility of happening? Right. Or how do you view it? Well, I think it just takes time. It's physics. It takes time and pressure. You know, it's work, 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 building the relationship with the sources for the people you're interviewing and the people surrounding the, the cases and getting closer and closer, gaining their trust, you know? And not I'm not just talking about Bob. Right. Because obviously that happened. But I'm talking about on the law enforcement side too, having... You know, this, I'm not saying this is what happened in the jinx, but having a cop come in with the entire case file, put mm -hmm. it on the desk and say, I'm not supposed to be showing you this, but I'm going to go get a lunch with my buddy. I'll be back in an hour. Right. And you get to kind of thumb through everything and actually see things that people have not seen before. Mm -hmm. So that when you see other things, you recognize what they are immediately. You know, that takes work. You know, that letter that we found uh, that was, you know, sort of the smoking gun for the Susan Berman murder that, you know, had her address written on top, just like the, uh, the cadaver note that Recap was Recap for me what that meant in that moment. Susan Berman was murdered. Someone sent a letter to the Beverly Hills police basically saying, just with one word, cadaver. And they had an envelope and a letter inside. And then, you know, a lot of people had never seen that. Matter of fact, there were people in law enforcement who had worked on the prosecution team in White Plains for Bob and couldn't describe that letter, you know, because it was in the LA County lockup in the uh, evidence room. Um, but you have to be able to recognize that the value of something, right? So you see that letter a year or two before you're going through a plastic container of correspondence and a guy shows you another letter. Now this one is definitely from Bob and it's to Susan Berman, and you look at the, the way the, the address is written on that letter, and instantaneously you're like, there's something about this. That's the hard work, that's the time, you know, of being able to absorb all that information and get so deep into it, you know, you're basically your nose is the only thing above water, right? right? And you're just, you know, you're just sitting there waiting for the fish to go by, you know? So, you know, it's really hard to do that on every project, but that project, we had the time. So we were digging, digging, digging. There was no, no, you know, sometimes we would come up against a brick wall and we would find another way around it. Very simply, it meant that, that uh, Bob had written the cadaver note. And if Bob wrote the cadaver note in his own words, he had murdered Susan Berman. So that was a moment. Um, now that moment, there's other stuff, right? Mm -hmm. The building of the, when I first called Sarah Kaufman, who is, you know, Susan Berman's sort of adopted son and had built a relationship with Bob after she died. I mean, basically they were buddies and Bob had paid for some of his college tuition and had helped him out in life. He was not open to the idea of Bob Durst being the murderer. I, I didn't bring it up. He didn't necessarily didn't jump in with that. Yeah, he didn't necessarily jump on board for the ride. Mm -hmm. But I built a relationship with him over time. You know, after I spoke to him at his place and did my initial interview with him, uh, I said, "Hey, is there any chance that you know you have stuff of Susan's that mm -hmm. you kept after she died?" Oh yeah, there's a there's storage area. Well, do you mind? He was very protective over this stuff. He wouldn't let me just go through it. Do you mind going through the stuff and? taking a look at it and seeing if there's anything like letters or anything. Cause I, I knew I was looking for a letter. Yeah. Because uh, of the cadaver note, I was looking for handwriting. Maybe there's something in there that could Did be Did you think you'd actually find one? 
No, of course not. I never think they're going to find it. <laughs> but he called and he recognized it before I did. It took me, I don't know if you, if you looked at that scene again, it takes mm -hmm. me a beat. I look at it and yeah, I'm so like, it, there's a beat where I don't recognize what it is. And then I recognize what it is. You so know? in your head, what's going on in that moment? What is this guy? Well, there was two things going on, right? There was my relationship with Sarah, and it was always a little cat and mouse. I love Sarah, and he's a great guy, but it was always a little cat and mouse with him because he was always kind of, you know. Dodgy. Dodgy. And uh, not in a negative sense, but right. just in like protecting himself, protecting sure. Bob at some level, protecting his rights in the story in some weird ownership way. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking that, like he's, what's he wanna show me? What is this gonna cost me? Not financially, but what, what, what are we, where are we going? What am I signing up for here? Yeah, right? what am I signing up for? And then he showed it to me and I looked at it and it took me just a beat or two, you see it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I realize what it is. And, um, and uh, that moment I was sort of like, oh, wow. So next job is to try to get him to give it to me which I knew was gonna be very difficult. Did you think for a second to just take it and run out the door? <laughs> no, because this is a relationship that I of built. Of course, and, yeah. You know, it's his, his mother basically was murdered. So he's gotta go through the emotional. Remember, he's been friends with, with Bob for years now. Mm -hmm, yeah. Bob's helped him out. Yeah, right. Right, so he's gotta That's go through- That's upsetting news to yes. this person more than anything else. He certainly knows what it means and he certainly had an, a reaction, which you see. Right, yeah. You know, and uh, so I needed to let him kind of work it out in his head. And uh, it took another three or four days of just talking and stuff. And one thing that I was pretty sure of and I talked about with Andrew a lot was the fact that if you just took these disparate pieces of evidence and you put them in a shoebox and you handed them to law enforcement, they would be like, that's great, file it away. You know, it wouldn't be necessarily like, oh, you guys are geniuses, you figured it all out, let's go arrest the guy. Cool so, letter, but yeah. yeah. So one thing I told, I told, you know, he, there was a moment where Sarah was like, I'm just gonna give this to the police. I said, you could do that. But can you imagine the pressure to do something positive, the police will be under if this comes out in an HBO multi-part series. Right. So you could give this to the police and they may be like, you know, we dusted it. We, yeah, it looks a lot like, you know, his writing, but handwriting is notoriously bad evidence yeah. in a courtroom. That's where we came up with the idea of confronting Bob with that letter. I mean, there was other people, you know, I, I mean, now I guess I could talk about this stuff because I think Andrew's making another season of The Jinx oh, about yeah? this subject matter, oh, nice. but I wouldn't talk about it back then. Um, but, uh, but now, you know, we were, you know, who Marsha Clark is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She, she was our consigliere. You know, we needed somebody who had worked in the LA DA's office and she was- OJ trial, right? Yeah, she yeah. did the OJ trial. And she was the lead prosecutor in that office for a while. So we were like, what would you do? And she was like, well, I agree with you. If you give it to the cops, they may be like, okay, yeah, maybe, I don't know. He's gonna have the most expensive lawyer in the world. It's just a writing sample. They're gonna come up with their other writing samples. It's gonna be a big mess in court. We're gonna have an expert. They're gonna, he's gonna have an expert. Or be interesting to see what, what Bob says about this. Right. And so did this speed up the urgency of it all in the documentary making process? Well, everything in the doc's true. So you see in the doc that Bob 
must have smelled it a mile away because he was not running towards the camera after that. He was no. sort of like... It, is that because he maybe a birdie told him or what? No. I think he woke up one morning. Look, every he has a lot of lawyers. And I think every one of his lawyers like, why are you doing this? This is the dumbest thing you ever did. You're, you're going to get yourself in trouble. You, was that just getting to him, you think? And it was just kind yeah, of... Yeah, I think hey, he, was just, he was just like... It's going to run out point, eventually here. Also, the more we were like... Hey, can you come and do another interview? Yeah, he was the more he was again? like, "Why do they want Are me you, to come right. and do another You're, interview?" I thought I told you everything. Yeah, but we always told him that we would do a, a wraparound interview. Okay, but but you know, and you know, we we went through a process to get him to sit down. So yeah, it was it took a while, but we we wanted to get it done as quickly as possible. Become a part of the fast growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. The whole scene where he's talking to himself right. with the lavalier mic on, right. was that a conscious decision? No. And could you describe the moment that you realized that it happened? Were I could describe listening? more yeah. than that. So, okay. so I was shooting that main camera that was the, the two of them, and I had Rosanna, who was shooting his second camera, sort of running around. And Nikita was doing sound. Mm -hmm. And when we ended... I was going to grab the camera, run downstairs and get them going in the elevator and going out the door. You're thinking about the next shot. Yeah, I'm thinking about the next shot. I could hear through my headphones, you know, Bob talking to Andrew, going to have a sandwich. I'm going to use the bathroom. Let me go use the bathroom. And I looked over and Nikita was like making the cut off, cut thing across his neck. Should we cut? And uh, it's digital, right? At this point, it's not film anymore. You never need to cut. <laughs> yeah, hold the roll. <laughs> you never need to cut. It's not going to cost anymore. Yeah, we're so good. I'm like, no, keep rolling. Um, and he, um, you know, kept rolling. I guess I thought, and he went in the bathroom, and uh, I didn't know he still had the mic on him. And I went and set up to go 
follow him downstairs. And that day was over. And we went back to the editor room. And the AEs, the assistant editors, they would go from basically claps from on off to on off. You know, they would they would basically, here's the interview, uh, camera off. Now there's a little seven minutes here at the end. Mm-hmm. They don't listen to it. They're just dumping it onto the hard drive in files and then selecting from camera on to camera off. Apparently Nikita had turned it off for a second before he went like this. And then he turned it back on when I did this, you know, keep rolling. And so there was a camera off. So I had hired a uh, editor named Shelby Siegel who worked on capturing the Freedmans. And she's like a rabbinical editor. She's like, you know, just can sit there and listen to stuff because we were getting close to being done because we had made it all uh, pretty much. And all we didn't have is that bathroom scene. We had the whole thing at the end. And, uh, and I just wanted to go through all the Bob interviews mm-hmm. and just, you know, she's a super smart young lady. And I just thought- Just looking for things that stand yeah, out or- Yeah, things that I might've missed. I told her, yeah, watch yeah. all the episode rough cuts mm-hmm. and just maybe there's stuff I missed, right. you know? So she started at hour one and two and three and went through all the 23 hours, then went to the second interview, which was more like two or three hours. And then heard just before he touches the doorknob, there it is. You're caught. There it is. You're caught. And I hear the scream in the back room. And she says, you got to come back here. And she plays it. And then Zach, my old partner on Crime Town, he was the main editor. And he said that, you know, there might be more. We don't know that. I mean, sometimes, you know, we don't take all of it into the avid. Sometimes pieces get left behind that are the on-off tail pieces, end, tail yeah. ends. We should go look on the hard drive. We did. I called Andrew. I said, you got to come down here because we got something to play for you. And uh, he was about 40 minutes away. We got the hard drive, loaded it up, and you could just see on the screen, you know, the little waves of Bob. And we waited till Andrew came. We played it. And that's how that happened. And what was the tone in the room at that point? Shock. Nobody, you know, I don't know. I'm not, I wasn't, I was never like gotcha or we're going to make a fortune or this is going to be the best thing ever. Right. It was just sort of like, holy moly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying right. to keep your show clean. And you almost blew it. If, yeah. you didn't, if you didn't go back, you did miss something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's kind of scary to even think about that, right? It could have gone by. But I mean, you had someone in, in the right role that you trusted to look around for stuff, right. right? So you were thinking ahead, but scary thought to think about how there could be stuff laying around that is that little missing piece. piece that right? sort of solves the crime at some level. I mean, you could make an argument that Bob, and Bob certainly made this ar- argument in the court, court that he was sort of a rambler who was just sort of talking euphemistically and sarcastically. Sure. But the reality is when I was there um, and he came out of that bathroom, I think he thought he was going to get arrested. Like a Chris Hansen He looked very anxious. Yeah. So there's a little, another great story about this. Okay. So yeah, that's what you felt in the moment there. Yeah. Like he was, he looked scared. Yeah. Like there was going to be a sting thing coming in here. Yeah. I don't remember when this was, but not long before we did that interview, uh, or maybe it was right after that interview, we were just going down in the elevator. I said, so what are you doing next? Where are you going? What's happened with your life? And he said, I'm going to Cuba, is what he said. 
I said, oh yeah? He said, yeah, I was there a little while ago. I did a cruise to Cuba. I'm going to go back to Cuba. And I was like, hmm, Cuba, interesting. When we handed stuff to the uh, law enforcement, mm -hmm. the FBI got involved. And they were tracking him during the, when the episodes were dropping. I, we didn't know this. This is something I learned afterwards. And they saw him throw his, he was watching the episodes. And at one point he throws his, his cell phone away so they can't track him with his cell phone. But they noticed that he was heading south, like towards New Orleans. And he had a history in, in the south and getting mm -hmm. Galveston. He had actually had a safe house in New Orleans uh, that he kept. Really? Yeah, just in case Galveston was a problem. And so they f started focusing on New Orleans. And when they arrested him, they kind of stumbled across him at the Marriott Hotel there. You know, they found that rubber mask. They found the $130,000 and the gun. And they found a, a ticket to Cuba. Because at that time, New Orleans was the only place you could fly out of to get directly to Cuba. Really? And Cuba had non-extradition, obviously, with the United States. So they were that so that close. was the plan. And that so was the he plan. He had even said that. He knew he was early. in trouble. He saw that letter. And, and that was the same day? Or just another day? But when, when did he mention Cuba to you? It was the day we were leaving, the day we, we did the interview. So he, or it might have been, we met with one, without cameras once before that to uh -huh. try to talk him into doing the interview. It might have been on that day that he told me about Cuba. But you had rattled the cage at this point. Oh, he knew he had a problem. He definitely knew. And when he was watching this series happen, mm -hmm. he knew. Which you are pretty sure he was watching, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. he, like episode three, he hits the road. Episode three, if I remember correctly, it ends with, That's you know, bizarre that he's moving and reacting as these episodes are dropping. Yeah. Like he's just on the run in sync with the world learning this for the first time. Yeah. I'm sure he didn't know that we had a recording of him talking about it in yeah, the bathroom. Yeah, I bet that was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, in the bathroom? Come on. But he did know we had the letter. Yeah. He, he saw himself. I mean, he was always talking to I mean, if to you himself. wrote that letter, you, you may react that way. Right. And, or it should mean nothing to you. Right. Right. But he also... It's interesting because if you watch the Jinx again, which of course you will do right after this interview. Yeah. Um, I'll call you every episode every minute, and recap it with You'll you. notice he talks to himself all the time. Mm -hmm. We catch him all the time. There's a, the end of one episode where he's like, I did not intentionally lie. I did not, you know, he's uh -huh. practicing his answer. Yeah, he's like, that is what I need to say. And his lawyer comes in, he's like, you know, the camera's rolling. Yeah, and they point that out, yeah, which they, is also a great <laughs> foreshadowing for what is about to happen. Yeah, but he did it all the time. I went, followed him around. Um, I don't know if you, this is a sidebar story, but he got in trouble with his, it's in the jinx. He got in trouble with his brother. He approached his house when we were filming him in Times Square, mm -hmm. just walking around. Yeah, I remember and that. His father had a, I mean, his father, his brother had a, uh, had a restraining order against him. Mm -hmm. So he had violated that. Anyway, so... I would follow him around and I was, I was the only camera guy and I, I was doing audio as well with the headphones on. And I would just, he'd go in for a Starbucks and he'd be talking to himself. And that's the first time I heard the word Cuba. He was tying his shoes in Starbucks and he was like, oh, Cuba, he would mumble to just himself. Just saying Cuba. Yeah, but he had probably, I think maybe what he might've been saying is, you know, well, I'll go to Cuba. Uh, maybe next month I'll go to Cuba. Is this, like it, are you just an earshot of this or is? No, no, I'm hearing it through the, he's okay. wired. But he's by himself. <clears throat> he's by himself. He thinks. He's so he's doing this by himself at his house. Even, yeah. Right. And I'm is, over here in the corner of Starbucks with my camera just shooting him. Wild. There's some of that, I think, in the jinx. Yeah, there is. Yeah. yeah there's some of that in the jinx. Yeah. And then I also had a still camera, my medium format still, all the 
whole publicity, that big poster on the side, yeah. that was stuff I shot him that day on a medium format Mamiya camera, film camera, film. I mean, you, you said earlier that you try to find compassion in these people when mm -hmm. you're telling the story, and that is part of your job. Yeah. Were you able to do that with Robert Durst? Yeah. How? Well, it's all in episode two, isn't it? So episode one is sort of a boilerplate of who this guy is and what he's accused of. Mm -hmm. Then he sits down at the end, he's gonna to talk to us. And the episode two is about his life and how he was... Now, whether these things are true, you know, like Doug Durst, like the fact that his mother jumped off the roof and he was watching, he says, mm -hmm. because his father had woken him up to try to lure the mother back to the window. She was on the roof of the house. Doug came out afterwards and said, that's not true. It doesn't really matter because in, in Bob's mind, it's true. You know, in Bob's- That's how he remembers it. That's how he remembers sees it, it, yeah. Right? And here is a guy who I believe has got pieces that are actually missing. Like he's got some sort of, he's on the spectrum in some way. Mm -hmm. And he's competing against a brother who's very intelligent. He's not unintelligent. He just doesn't have the same deck of cards sure. that his brother has for the family business. And he has a very overbearing father who, you know, he would like to please in some subconscious way, but hates consciously. Mm -hmm. All the stories about him peeing in the sushi at the company meetings and, you know, showing up dressed in shorts and a t-shirt for big meetings and just being a complete rebel, yeah. you know, how he went up to Vermont and started a, a health food store and also smoked pot just all day long, mm -hmm. every day. He's a big pot smoker. So he was damaged goods. He was damaged goods. And, you know, in some ways he was sort of constructed to commit these crimes. You know, by, by who? By his, his physiological and neuro neurological makeup, whatever was happening in his brain that was limiting his ability to feel sympathy because he was not an, an empath at all. And what was happening in his life, the pressure he was under to, um, to be the next heir to the Durst real estate fortune. Mm -hmm. And then losing that, people don't know this, and they, it's in the jinx, I think, but he didn't speak to his family for years after he was passed over. He left town. He was out. Crushed him. Crushed him. And I feel like, you know, those were the years that he was with Kathy he was supposedly working, but he was rebelling. He was not functional in the family business. He was competing against Doug, who was much more capable. His father was in this position of tough love, probably, combined with, what do I do with this, you know? And, you know, Kathy was stepping out. He was stepping out. Kathy was stepping out. Kathy was unhappy. Kathy was going to medical school. She was successful at it. She was gonna be successful. She was gonna be a doctor and independent, not dependent on him. And so and how did that make him feel, you think? He was gonna lose somebody else because of who he is, right? So she, that was not gonna happen. So he, he, you know, they had an argument, he killed her. And so how did it spin from one murder to more than that? Then it was just about covering his, 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 his tracks. So, you know, in 2000, I mean, this is all that, this is the story of the jinx. In, two, in 2000 and 
seven. Oh my God. Anyway, they reopened. What year is it? Yeah, Janine <laughs> Pirro reopened, the DA in Westchester County reopened the case and Saber rattled a lot about going after him and, and he disappeared. Went down to Galveston as a woman, lived in an apartment in a house like a, you know, like a college kid wouldn't even want to live in it, mm -hmm. you know, and befriended a guy named Morris Black. And, you know, and the rest of that is history. Morris ended up in body parts floating around Galveston Bay. Why did he commit this, that second murder? I mean, it, what- Morris probably figured out who he was. So you think everything from that point, from the murder of his wife, was just covering up it's about the betrayal. snowball track? Of... It's about betrayal. There's two things I used to say to Andrew. If you're, if you're in a relationship with Bob Durst, never ask him for money. Why? It's a trigger. Oh. So, you know, there, was, there were reports that Kathy was contacting other family members and she was asking money because he'd cut her off as a way to control her. And, you know, and then when she initiated divorce proceedings, she was asking for $250,000 settlement, which mm -hmm. they could have afforded. It's like a, nothing to the Durst family. Right. But he refused. And then they got in this argument and she was killed. Morris, I'm pretty sure, figured out who this guy was and was like, okay, now you gotta pay me, you know, to keep my mouth shut. Right. And that was the end of him. And then Susan Berman was having a hard time. She was on, she was broke, completely broke. She was living in a, in a borrowed apartment house in Beverly Hills. She had no money. She had already borrowed two $25,000 installments from Bob and she was probably asking for more money. She's probably the only person who knew that Bob had murdered Kathy. Somebody called the hospital where, where the medical school, mm -hmm. where Kathy was going to medical school after he would have been able to kill her saying that she was sick and she couldn't show up to medical school that week. Mm -hmm. That was probably Susan. So how did you find compassion for this person? First of all, Bob was, funny he was you know you could sit and talk to the guy he was mm -hmm. he was amusing in a very off kilter sort of way um and you could see that he suffered what is this constant pot smoking and drug taking but medicating himself against his own mind right you know he he was suffering all the time to say that he was a sociopath and felt no guilt i don't think that's true i think he felt a lot of guilt about, that's why I sent the cadaver note, you know? That's why he left little pieces of evidence along the way. And by the way, that's why he reached out to us. He had a compulsion to confess. Okay, so you, you think that he was just playing with fire and trying to, just testing whether or not he would tell you everything? Oh, how many of these guys who do these crimes end up somehow trying to, to not get caught, but to take credit for them? Mm-hmm. That's one part of it. The other part of it is I think he had a compulsion to confess. I think he had guilt. I yeah. think he wanted to, he wanted to, you know, get it off his chest. He was eating at him, man. He had so many physical problems that were like, you know, his, he had terrible GERD. Yeah. You know, GERD is right. So yeah. it's an anxiety issue. Yeah. Right. So he had awful GERD. They had done this surgery on his esophagus. He had all kinds of physical problems from years of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and just living with the guilt of all these things he had done. So, so yeah, you feel bad for him. You're not like, I was happy when he got caught and I was happy for the McCormick family 
that they had some sort of closure, although he was never actually convicted of Kathy's murder. But you could still feel bad for the guy. Did you ever talk to Bob after he was uh, arrest, arrested? No. No, no. no way. That would have been bad for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think so. I mean, there was a time when we thought that we would be a big part of the trial. Right. Because, you know, it was the, the defense was going to be, and they started with this. There was a little rumblings with this. Those, those greedy uh, filmmakers set my poor Bob up you know, my right. client up and- They didn't get that far though. Yeah, they cut it all together and made something out of it. Like, but well, the judge- no. <laughs> Yeah, but the judge- the no, We, we really you. didn't. I mean, the yeah. judge and and John Lewin, who's a brilliant cold case prosecutor, they headed that off at the pass by basically saying, well, we're not gonna use the jinx as evidence in a trial. We're gonna use the footage, the raw footage, uh, and we're gonna use the recordings, audio recordings, but, and they're not gonna be edited. And your experts can look at it and say they're not edited, and that's what we're going to use. We're not going to call the film. Yeah. And then when the defense tried to call the film, I think the judge said it's not doesn't it's not doesn't make any sense that that would be part of this trial. We're not the film is not on trial. Right. There was a moment when I thought I'd have to testify. And yes. I was I very very happy that I didn't have to. That testify. would be fun. No, <laughs> I thought I was going to have to as well for up and vanish. But. Right. Well, you Turns had, out they you had just, a very similar experience, right? It, it was pretty similar. I mean, it, it was my jinx moment. Yeah. 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 It was- uh, I think the first time we, we talked, you said that you were looking for a jinx moment. You, you, like, you saw the jinx and you were Was like, it before my jinx moment? Yes. It was when okay. I came down to Atlanta the first Foreshadowing. time. Foreshadowing. Yeah. And we got drunk in that bar with Donald. Yeah. I remember <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> Donald had one drink and he was drunk. Yeah. <laughs> we had five. He's the best. <laughs> I love Donald. Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird moment. Yeah, and when, when it takes this big turn like that, and now there's all these other players and the system involved as a reaction to something that you did in your investigative work. Yeah, and you know, it's what was your strategy? I know what my strategy was when I when I when law enforcement got involved, which was not something like you see in the movies. You know, we had to. I think I made a four versions of a PowerPoint that I showed the LADA. Yeah. And we had a whole process by which basically we were like, you need to look at this, you know? And luckily John Lewin was a very, very smart guy and he, he got it. Yeah. But what was it like for you when you, when you engaged with them? Was it confrontational? Because a lot of times- At what point like, in time? Because in the beginning it was, you know, the local police would entertain me enough to talk to me, at least one of the sheriffs would. But they really kind of wanted to figure it out on their own, and they didn't really think that this was important. You know, this just some random guy from Atlanta making a podcast in South Georgia. Who cares? Hmm. I mean, if you're one of those executives who's, you know, scratching their head, banging their head against the wall, trying to figure out how to make a hit, yeah. what is it, to, like, in your opinion, that is the special sauce when it comes to why this one has that big moment and I don't this know one anymore. doesn't. I've lost track of that. But I can't you, say you, that. Like you did at one point, but now you don't? Or yeah. Genuinely think, feel that way? I'm not really sure. There was a time when, oh, this is, this is, this is a, a, a difficult subject because mm -hmm. there's um, social and political considerations that come into making these choices now right. that were not part of the equation before. I'm not saying that that's wrong at all, any, in any way, but it makes it more difficult 
to figure out how to, there's like two more pieces to the puzzle that you have to make to create a piece of IP. It doesn't have to, it doesn't just have to be compelling, have momentum, have central characters you love and all the things that we used to do. It has to have, you know, all these politically correct pieces to it. Sure. Um, and so I'm not really sure how much of that, how little of that is, is you know, the, the, you know, I don't know how to do, how to, how to quantify that. Right. And maybe, does anyone per se, I mean, I think that, it, it, I mean, as a society, at the end of the day, we're making it up. We, we are creating these, you know, these boundaries or the recipe for what it should be as we're going here. Right. Well, we're trying to make something compelling. Yeah. Yeah. We weren't thinking about that. But I think we needed to be thinking about that. So, mm -hmm. you know, that there's other stories that need to be told. Um, and, you know, and other storytellers who should be telling those stories. And when I was making music videos, it was all hip hop and, and rap. And name one. And then I wasn't the guy to make those anymore. Na right? No, name one. Oh, you, Cool G Rap, uh, Coolio, Coolio, Mary J. Blige. Really? Yeah. And not all as director. I had a company called Notorious and I had other directors. We did rock and roll. We did, we did everything. We did Marilyn Manson. We did everybody. You what was your favorite one, you think? Of like all the, the ones that, the, end the ones that we made, or the mm -hmm. ones that I mean, yeah, that I made, made the Guantanamera video for the Fugees that got nominated for an MTV award. Nice. Um, I really liked working for with the Fugees, Lauren Hill. She was amazing. Um, but you know, I I did like <laughs> I did a documentary about Destiny's Child for Columbia Records. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was it's deep into the music world. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Were you always into the the music scene? I mean, hip hop and stuff. Um, in the beginning, um, for me, I mean, ugh, I'm going to say so many things get me in trouble. But when Puff Daddy got into it, it's um, Diddy now. Yeah, and it became you know Puff bling. Daddy is no longer his name. Okay, whatever his name is Diddy. now. Okay, it's Diddy. Yeah. So when it became Bling and Benjamins and mm -hmm. Booties, I was sort of like, all right, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. That's a long time ago then. <laughs> I'm old. Because I was doing Cool G Rap and we were doing, we were going down to Houston. I'll sing some rap boys. songs that, that you'd like. Yeah. There is, a, I mean, no doubt the sound has changed. And mm. there's some stuff that you probably would not like. But no, there was a, just a period where it was all oh, about, totally. yeah. you know, the cars and the women and the money and the gold. And the, the and I wish isn't But wasn't that. Puff Daddy doing that too? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay, yeah, so you mean... When pre, he came in, it changed that. everything. Oh, I, oh, I, I see. Yeah, it changed everything. Biggie yeah. was amazing, but yeah. you know, but it changed a lot about what was, and it, for the better. I mean, but it wasn't stories I could tell. Everything I was doing was a story. You know, Scarface, he told stories. Cool G Rap, he so, told a story in it. You know, so we would just cinematize. Yeah, the rap song. It was kind of really fun. Yeah, you know, and then bring we, it to life. Really, yeah, yeah. Um, but then it became, you know, I'm not a choreographer and I'm not, you know, I'm not a fashion designer or, you know. Clearly, and, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't going to be for me anymore. I mean, do would you learn from that that you were able to apply later at all? Because it, I was shooting them. That's where I learned. So I, like, I used to do uh, music videos too, where it's yeah. like, and they seem like starkly different where you have, okay, I was doing hip hop videos and I'm doing, I'm investigating a cold case mm. and telling a story. I wasn't doing it all at the same time. Well, I wasn't so, either, but that just to make a long story short, when I got, I worked for Brokaw, there was a crash in TV. This is not the first one we're going through right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd come east to work on a 
on a weekly show with, with Tom called, can't remember what it was called, but it was an investigative show. Okay. And um, what time period is this? What year was this? Yeah, like around when? 1992. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then everything got canceled, and I was working as a waiter at an Italian restaurant on 86th Street. And, uh, and then I got a job with Berlusconi Television, and I did that for a while. I, I really built their thing in Rockefeller Center and everything like that and did a bunch of work with them and was night editing. And, um, and then, you know, a friend of mine said to me, I'm starting a company to do music videos and do you want to do them? And hip hop and rap was just, it was still something of the street. Mm -hmm. It was Bismarck Key, yeah. 125th Street, you know? And, um, and we just start shooting them. We had clients who would show up with $35,000 in shopping bags. Yeah. To shoot a music video. I've been paid that way too, actually. Yeah. 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 And what I did was I, I shot them. You know, you didn't get cinematographer, you got a camera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're the guy who does this now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, so I, you know, I had gone to film school. My, one, my cinematographer teacher was Conrad Hall. So I knew how to shoot stuff. So all of a sudden, this stuff he was making jumped up in quality a bunch, you know, right. and, uh, and we started just growing and growing. And we, we had other directors, directors, Marcus Rayboy. I don't know if you've heard that name. He was a big hip hop director back then. Uh, Guy Guillet was a big director back then. Paul Fedor was a big director back then. You have a good memory. No, not so good, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that leap, I think for some people is hard to understand. Yeah. Where, you know, and they, they seem like they're very different. Mm. You know, is there any crossover to you and your Well, for head? me, they weren't because they were about, I thought there was a revolution going on. Mm. Uh, listening to the music oh, yeah, okay. and talking to these guys, I thought that there was something. It felt bigger than just a music video to you. Yeah, I thought we were doing something important, for sure. Um, and that ended, obviously. That was, is that important to you in telling a story? Is that you feel like it's something important? It must be. I try not to think about it because it sounds very, you know, platitude-y but it must be because I'm always looking for it, that important story. Do you think you'll ever stop being a storyteller? It's a, the only way I can make a living, so. Well, I'm I mean, even, let's say. I can still wait tables, but my feet would hurt a lot. Yeah, they would. <laughs> I'd come tip you every now and then. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean, are, is there ever going to be a moment that you think that you could, that you'll hang up the hat and you'll just stop? Are you going to just Martin Scorsese, the shit where you just do well, it. Oh, Sidney Lumet, I would like to think. Well, he's huh? 83. Sidney Lumet, you know who he is? He made no, Dog Day that? Afternoon. He did a lot of movies, Prince of the City, that were you would love, that are based on true stories. Okay, Serpico cool. okay. was a Sidney Lumet film. And uh, his last film was When the Devil Knows You're Dead, I think is the name of the I've movie. I've heard of that. Yeah. So good. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And, mm -hmm. um, and he, I think he was 83. He did it almost a movie a year until he was 83 years old and he died within a couple of years of that. So yeah, well, what else would I do? Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career 
And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. I want to say, I mean, I think this is right. You guys at some, like, only at a certain point in the series in the Jinx, turn the cameras back around on yourselves a little bit. Only after we found the letter. And so, that, was that a conscious thing, right? I mean, just... No, it was what happened. I mean, in terms of, like... <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of the... Or, or you guys weren't filming yourselves at all, really. Not all of a sudden, that. now we're... I mean, so when did that thought come into play? Say, hey, well, this is happening. Should, should we just be recording this? When Zach and we're I not were out in California... Story, right? When Zach and I were out in California and... Um, and Sarab Kaufman called and he said, I found something, I need you to come over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, what? And he said, I, I can't tell you, but I'll show you when you get here. I was like, all right, we gotta shoot this. Okay, yeah. That was sort of the first time yeah. that we- And that was, we, your, yeah. that was your first thought, like, hey, I we made, need to record I, this. Know, right, remember we, you know, we were sort of experimenting with small cameras at that time. Mm-hmm. We used, I think the little cannons. The- which, oh, oh, like the... Yeah, the old ones, the little ones that were tiny. Okay, yeah. Um, and so we shot that. And then, of course, from that moment, I'm like, now we're not telling... We can't turn the cameras off at all. We're going to shoot everything. Yeah. So that's, that's why From I that called, point forward, you were that's just... That's why I didn't... All systems go, like, we're, we're recording this right. shit. When we found the bathroom recording, that's why I'm like, don't play it. I'm going to call Jarecki, set up a camera. Yeah. Capture it in the moment. Yeah. Yep. So we became players because we were players at that point in the in the drama. You know, we'd found this thing, Sarah had found this thing and shown it to us. And then we were gonna have to figure out what it meant, what we were gonna do with it. I mean, a lot of people, you know, there were a couple of people, not a lot, but there were a few people who were like, why didn't you give them to law enforcement right away? The guy could have murdered three more people. Because I knew better. <laughs> well, I just- I mean, I, I, I get I, that I, that's a, you know, a. a a big decision, but you also didn't tell her not to do it. You said, you mean Sarah? Yeah. You said, yeah, I didn't tell him not to do it. it. I just told him, no, it's going to happen. They're going to put it in a box. That's what I think. Here's what I think. Yeah. Right. They're going to put it in a box, shove it in Evan's room, and then it'll be gone forever. Yeah. And just like they did the first time around. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. You need the pressure of something big coming down the pipe, which is like an HBO series. Right. To get people to pay attention. Mm Mm-hmm. And I mean, that was yeah. the leverage through the whole conversation 
with the DA's robbery homicide in LA, the leverage we had to get them to pay attention was, we're making it. It's coming. Really? They, they oh, yeah. just see it. The storm's coming. They, you know, we got, yeah. it's going to be big. Yeah. It's, it's so a whole. You want to see what we got? Right. Yeah, yeah. we'll show you. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, in the jinx, they're not in it. We weren't doing that because we were like, it's going to make a better show if we have the cops come in at the end and arrest them. Yeah, that's right. not part of it. Yeah. You know, I think that's, you know, that would have been wrong. But what is, what we were doing was, you know, we'd, I'd spent, I mean, Andrew and I had spent so much time with the McCormick family. Mm -hmm. We were just trying to get some closure. And, you know, even you know, the Sarab thing was, what do we say it was? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, you had a good word for it. Rocky. Oh, no, I, I said dodgy. Dodgy. Right. A little dodgy, right. right? You know, it's like, you'll be able to eventually get a hold of this person. Right. Most likely. Right. And, and, you know, it might take a lot more effort, but if you've already given it a go, you might need to give it a, a beat. Yeah. Before you go send that long text, whatever it is that your method is to to try to get someone's attention and tell them what you're trying to Never do. Never text. <laughs> Never text. I mean, we got different methods then. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm texting stuff that... I text people who, who like to text. Yeah, yeah, of course. Right? And... This is, I, I call me. I I called to do recording stuff and or to, but sometimes just a a setup situation where it's like, hey, like you know, logistical thing and making sure everyone's comfy. This is, is getting is into the territory of like tech tactics, which I don't like to like. <laughs> oh, that's not the class we're doing today. Everybody? Well, I mean, you know, I don't want oh, everybody tactics. to ever yeah. think that no, I'm doing something to them that is like a tactic. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, and it isn't, is the thing, right? It's it's as much of a tactic as it is a getting to know somebody thing. It's like, if I want to be your friend, and I, I, what I say to people is that if I expect people to be vulnerable with me, mm -hmm. then I have to be vulnerable with them. I, I'm with you 100%, but and how you deliver that information, there's a, for me, there's a three-tier. It is, really. There's a three-tier value in, in, or three things you can do. You can talk to them. That's the best. You know, like nothing shows that you want their attention than flying across the country and showing up at their door and 100%. taking them to dinner. Yeah, hey, I'll be there tomorrow. I will often tell my producers that dinners are the most important thing you're going to do. Yeah. Right? That's a Second thing gesture. is writing a letter. I write a lot of letters because a lot you of the mean guys a physical letter here. Physical letters. And you go to the you go to a mailbox and you you lick a stamp and you yes. do that. I, yeah, especially if they're in prison. I mean, you're right. There's something just you know, it's especially when you if get in a letter, you feel special. It's not even that they feel special. No, it's, it's like it's a, no it's one a does that anymore either, though. It's a contract you can hold in your hand. Oh, it's a, you mean as a just a representation yeah. of this? Yeah, this is who I am. You can hold it in your hand. You can weigh it. I took the time to do it. It's not disposable, you know? It's yeah. something that exists Tangible. in the world. Yeah. The last thing is, a, is an email. Oh, yeah. The last thing is an email because it's so disposable. And it's just, I mean, I say text because texts are more intimate than an email is. Yes. It, it, an email is just automatically cold. Mm. There's nothing personal. I mean, unless you're just saying, I've said my piece and that's it to some business person. Yeah. Yeah. Can I tell you a story about this? Uh -huh. I'm working on something right now. <clears throat> it's a wise guy thing <clears throat> with the New York mafia. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to round 
I'm just trying to dot all the I's and, you know, figure out who's who and what's what. And there's one guy who's in prison who's a very high up in this crime family. He's been in prison for a very long time, so he's probably going to be in prison forever. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that's a letter. You can't call a guy in prison. Yeah. I write him a letter. And like a week or two later, I get a text. He's texting me from prison. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got, I got a story about that too. I, I'll, I'll, I don't know if I can get in trouble for this or not. Um, <laughs> Just don't name any names. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no names here. Okay. Um, there was a time. Yeah. And there's been a couple times, but there's one time that this is the way that it happened. That I... You probably shouldn't tell this story. <laughs> What is the what? Are, let's look up. The yeah, law. I don't think that's a good. This no. is not a good story to tell. Okay, oh, you tell me when we after. Yeah, my, yeah I don't we'll think cut you want this, this record. Yeah. <laughs> cut. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques. Whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals, or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. I think you using the word tape, I mean, because I have zero reason to use the word tape other than you know, it's like, yeah, that's what the guys say, I guess. Yeah. But it's not tape anymore. But yeah, when you say tape in a production sense, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I want that good tape. Yeah. 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 Just to kind of close it out. Mm. Years ago, you, you, you left that little earworm in my head about, you know, these stories never leave you. Mm. What are your words of wisdom today? What would you say? And be it better be good. Oh boy. Yeah. Don't don't bomb it. Well, you know, I guess the thing I would say is what I often say is you know, when we were um, making the jinx, I met Dick DeGarren. And Dick DeGarren uh, told me once. He said, "If you're going to be a defense lawyer in a murder trial, you only have to prove two things. You got to prove that 
the victim deserved getting murdering and your client is the guy to do it. So that was sort of his strategy, mm -hmm. murder trials. So often I find myself telling young podcast people who, who bring me a pilot tape because they've been working on it for three, four years. Mm -hmm. You gotta figure out why you're the guy to tell the story and why the story is worth telling. You know, so those are two things. That's what, there's a lot of stuff out there. And some of it's good, but the stuff that really touches people, the, the stuff that really makes connection with people, it goes ballistic. It's stuff where, you know, it's S-Town. It's those, it's those stories, serial, where the person who's telling the story connects themselves. It doesn't have to be like, and then, you know, we were driving the car together to rob a bank. It has to be an emotional connection. And then you've got to figure out why, you're, why this story needs to exist. Why me, why now? Yeah. That's good. I like that. <laughs> Cheers, man. Cheers. Yeah. <clears throat> One more take of that. <laughs> Talking to Death is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeart Podcast, created and hosted by Payne Lindsay. For Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright. Co-executive producer is Mike Rooney. For iHeart Podcasts, executive producers are Matt Frederick and Alex Williams, with original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Additional production by Mike Rooney, Dylan Harrington, Sean Nurney, Dayton Cole, and Gustav Wilde for Cohedo. Production support by Tracy Kaplan, Mara Davis, and Trevor Young. Mixing and mastering by Cooper Skinner and Dayton Cole. Our cover art was created by Rob Sheridan. Check out our website, talkingtodeathpodcast.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.